Pep Guardiola is a Spanish football coach, Catalan, who manages Manchester City Football Club. <laughs> Pep is widely regarded as one of the great managers, one of the most successful coaches of our time, maybe of all time. In 2013, he joined Bayern Munich, German team, and in the first season, they won four trophies. He's a winner. Pep is known for his focus, his perfectionism, his intense attention to detail. He's concerned about every single aspect of the game and of his players, even down to their diet. There's a great story about his first couple of games at Bayern, which were actually friendlies. It illustrates this, and it's to do with some wonderful German cakes. This happened at their second game. They were playing a team called TSV Regen. A table overflowing with buns, pastries, and drinks awaited them in the dressing room. And a few of the players immediately tuck into the chocolate tarts. This is the second match in a row that they've been treated to a similar spread. And Guardiola is taken aback. With an hour and a half left before kickoff, he takes a minute to talk to Kathleen Kruger, the team manager, about why both of the teams felt it was appropriate to provide his players with pastries. And she reassures him that it was Bayern themselves who established the custom originally. By the way, Bavaria is a great place for cakes. They won the game 9-1. On the way home, Guardiola told a colleague that they need a nutritionist. He doesn't want any more pastries. For Pep, the players' diets, and in particular their post-match nutrition, are a vital component of their professional life and need to be closely controlled. His requirements are far from radical, but they are demanding. There will be no more buns for Bayern. No more buns. What if players want to leave the team? Pep is gracious but unapologetic. Brahim Diaz recently announced his decision to move from Manchester to Madrid last month. Pep said, hopefully other players won't decide to move on. But I don't want people who don't want to stay here to be with us, to try to achieve what we want to achieve. In other words, are you in or out? Now that's Pep Guardiola, a football coach. That's what it means to follow him, to be on his team. Dedication, commitment, rigor. What about Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, the King of Kings? What does it mean to follow him? We should hardly expect that following Jesus is going to be somehow easier than following Pep Guardiola, somehow less demanding than being in a football team, should we? And that's the point of our reading today. It's that followers of Jesus are called to radical discipleship, not just demanding radical discipleship, to be totally committed to Jesus and his cause. Followers of Jesus are called to radical discipleship. Now, the first half of Mark's gospel, which we've been reading for the last few months, is asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is this? And it focuses on Jesus' public ministry, what he's doing in public. And then in chapter 8, there's a great turning point, a hinge. Jesus asks his closest followers to say who he is. And Peter gives the right answer. You are the Messiah, chapter 8, verse 29. And that was a massive breakthrough. They've perceived that the carpenter from Nazareth is actually the Messiah, God's anointed king, the one special king who... The true God promised would deal with Israel's enemies and bring in a new reign of peace and justice for the world without end.
But straight away, Jesus began to teach them what his kingship would look like, and it was shockingly counterintuitive. Back in chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them straight away that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter, who just had the big breakthrough, takes him aside to correct him. You can't, you can't say this. It cannot be this. Suffering and death. Now, Peter's reaction would have been true for all of them. No one would think that the king would suffer and die. And Jesus' response after rebuking Peter was to call the crowd to him. Everyone who would come and listen. And there he laid down, he spelled out what following him means. And he says this in chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now, that was the hinge for the whole book. And the reason we keep emphasizing this is that we have to understand that the second half of Mark's gospel is now all about what Jesus came to do. First half, who is he? Second half, what has he come to do? And therefore, the focus moves to private instruction of the disciples. You notice from chapter 9 onwards, there's a lot more emphasis on private teaching Jesus gives to his disciples. He is showing them what it means to follow him. And they really need it. Because following Jesus is so radical, so upside down, it goes against the grain of every culture. And it needs a total reorientation of your life, your character, and your expectations. And we really need it too. So in the midst of this section, which is teaching us what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple, we have chapter 10, verse 1 to 31. Well, what is this all about? We've got a section headed divorce, a section headed the little children, a section about the rich. What is this all about? Now, these headings that are in our church Bibles, and maybe in your own Bible if you have it with you, they really do not help us at all. Because they make it look like the text is all broken up into bits, as if Mark... The writer has just randomly changed topic and he decided, oops, I forgot to put that bit in about divorce. I'd better stick it in here. Oh, and then there was that bit about the children. Everyone loves that. Let's put that in next. And then ah, the rich guy. Yes, stick him in there. Now, this is not put together like a string of beads. It's bunged on the string. This is very much part of the overall thrust. Mark is a careful, Holy Spirit-inspired theological editor he's not just freewheeling and he's carefully putting these things together to show us under the big heading followers of Jesus are called to radical discipleship in these three areas and I'm going to summarize them in three words David could we have the next slide integrity humility and totality now something weird happened when I was finishing my sermon which is this I realized by the end of point two, I'm going to run out of time. I'm just going to tell you that now. So actually, we're only going to do the first two points today. But I think that'll be enough. You'll have to come back next week to hear about totality and the rich man. Firstly, integrity. Verse one, Jesus left that place, went into the region of Judea, across the Jordan, 
Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, notice what is going on here. Jesus is teaching crowds, crowds of people. He's a celebrity. They're hanging on his every word. And some Pharisees come up as well. Now, these are men who belong to a protest group who want to reform the nation with a back-to-basics morality campaign. They're like the Tory party in the 1990s. They hate Jesus because he doesn't conform to their expectations and he undermines their power base. They really hate him. In fact, right back at the, quite early in the book, chapter 3, verse 6, we, we read that they are actually plotting to kill Jesus with the political leaders, the Herodians. So they're already plotting. This, is, this has been going on for seven chapters. And so this question here about divorce is not a, an honest question. It is a test. Why do they ask this question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Because divorce is an emotive subject, isn't it? And they ask it in public because they're trying to get Jesus into trouble, to expose him and cause problems for him. Notice the location where this happens in verse 1. Judea, by the Jordan River. This is where John the Baptist used to work and preach, baptize people. And remember, John the Baptist had got into hot water for criticizing the ruler, Herod Antipas, for his irregular marriage arrangements. Herod had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, and she had to divorce her husband in order to marry Herod. John the Baptist spoke out plainly about it, and you know, remember what happened? He was imprisoned and eventually beheaded. The Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to say something that will get him into trouble. And in the Jewish world of the first century, divorce was an easy way to divide the room. There were two main schools of thought on the matter. One was associated with a rabbi called Hillel. He taught that a husband could divorce his wife for anything that displeased him. Anything. Now, that, you, you may gather, was the more liberal view. The other view was, was more conservative. That was Rabbi Shammai. He taught that a husband could only divorce his wife for sexual infidelity. So these two main schools of thought, Hillel was the more liberal, quickie divorce position. Shammai was the more conservative position. Guess which one was the most popular among men? You guessed it, Hillel. And surprisingly enough, the Pharisees, scholars think, favored that view. It vastly uh, increased the power of men. Now notice how Jesus responds. He does not walk in and answer which position he supports. In fact, what he says is something far more profound and deep. Verse 3, he responds with a question. What did Moses command you? Now, someone at our life group this week asked, why does Jesus never seem to give a straight answer? Now, that's a good question. And I've thought about it a lot since Thursday night. The answer is sometimes he does. Other times he's trying to get people to think, not just give them content, but get them reflecting. But other times, like here, Jesus is actually on the counterattack to hostile critics. Notice how the Pharisees respond. They reply, and this is a very interesting reply. He says, what did Moses command you? And they say in verse 4, Moses permitted. 
a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They go into the process of divorce. But that's not what Jesus asked. They're citing a well-known passage from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24. This passage gave permission for a man to divorce his wife, and it was really written to uh, protect women in a culture where they could be divorced and left with, uh, completely vulnerable and unprotected. The, the text in question gives women uh, the status of a legitimate divorcee, which would protect them from accusations of adultery if they remarried. It also protected them from the exploitation of the husband coming after them and trying to reclaim them if they married as, uh, again, the new husband. It also gave them some rights, some financial security. If a genuine divorce certificate was given, the husband also had to give some uh, settlement for it. Not, not an amazing settlement, but something. So it was a, a concession kind of law based on terrible cultural practices that left women completely exposed. Moses, uh, under God's leading, it's God's Holy Spirit, writes this in Deuteronomy 24, but Crucially, the passage does not spell out what constitutes a legitimate ground for divorce, hence the debate between the rabbis. But notice that the Pharisees didn't actually answer Jesus' question. He didn't ask, what did Moses permit? He asked, what did Moses command? So then Jesus goes back to what Moses commanded. Genesis 1 and 2, the big picture of marriage, what God intended for marriage. Have a look with me again, verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they, the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Verses 6 to 8 are God's intention for marriage. It is a defining, lifelong, utterly committed relationship between one man and one woman, covenanted together for life. In essence, it is a union. A unity of two becoming one. No other relationship like this. This union is so profound that Jesus says they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage creates a bond between a husband and wife that is not merely a partnership, but something far deeper. A new entity, you might say, a new human being. Many husbands refer to their wife as my better half. I tend to say that, and I mean it. She is the other half of me, and she's better. It's a union at every single level, emotional, psychological, financial, legal, and of course, sexual. The covenant sign of marriage is the delight and intimacy of sex. And sex is an illustration then of what has happened to those two people in the rest of their life, two becoming one flesh. That's why you shouldn't get naked with someone sexually if you're not prepared to get naked with them in every other area of your life and be united with them in a covenant relationship to the end of your days 
And that's why even if you are married, sex is contingent on the unity of the rest of your life. Have you noticed that? If the marriage has become emotionally disunified, don't expect great sex. It doesn't work like that, obviously. First, sort out the emotional disunity, then other things will follow. Verse 9, Jesus concludes, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is the logical outcome of the Genesis teaching. God has given this unique, extraordinary provision to humankind, this unique institution of marriage. It is a unique act of self-giving to another person that involves total commitment of who you are, and there should not be any turning back. What is unified should not be ripped apart. Now, we know this intuitively. I think we all do. When we're at a wedding, seeing the happy couple and all the beaming family and friends, we're not hoping that it will break apart in a few years. Unless you're a particularly bitter ex-girlfriend. No one is. And we all know someone, don't we, who's going through a divorce or has been through a divorce or was affected by a divorce. We all know the tearing apart that it causes, the trauma. It's the ripping apart of one flesh. And because marriage changes you forever, divorce can't reverse that. Now look, I know this is a delicate subject for some of us. I don't want to reopen old wounds today, but this is God's word that we're looking at and we have to, we have to open it up. We've all sinned in every area of our lives and Jesus Christ forgives us for all our sins freely and unconditionally. What can make me wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We just sang it. But his blood can wash away your sins. It has done, categorically. He took it all upon him and took it far away and buried it in the depths of the sea. Divorce, then, is not in some special category of condemnation. You know, Jesus forgives everything except that. And there's no, no second chances. Although churches do sometimes make it so. Even more, I don't want to imply for a moment that when divorce happens, both people are equally at fault. You know, that is rarely the case. Sometimes there are divorces where one person is almost completely innocent and the other one is the perpetrator. And churches have to be very sensitive about this. However, I do want to point out again the context of our passage. This is not the full teaching about divorce and marriage in the Bible. It is one episode in the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't go into the detail and the small print and questions about div whether divorce is ever justifiable and what the legitimate grounds might be. Remember, he's facing some hostile critics and he's answering about the creator's intention for marriage. Jesus doesn't go against the Old Testament law. He always affirms it and fulfills it. So what is the point that Jesus is making here? It's that his disciples... His followers must have absolute integrity with regard to marriage. And that is what the Pharisees lacked for all their supposed righteousness. Notice that their handling of the Bible was basically to look for the loopholes. Their question is basically, what can we get away with? Not, what is God's will? And Jesus is very clear. Divorce is not God's intention for marriage. That's his point 
in verse 11 and 12. Divorce is a sin because it's against God's intentions. And the law in Deuteronomy 24 and Moses' permission was basically given because of human sin and hard-heartedness. Now, I want to just give a couple of caveats here. This does not mean that there are never legitimate grounds for divorce. There are in the Bible. In Matthew's gospel, in the parallel to this passage, Jesus actually does mention one legitimate ground for divorce. It's sexual infidelity. It breaks a covenant. It's a ground for divorce. He's not saying you have to divorce. Jesus' spirit and heart would always be for restoration, for forgiveness, for the marriage to be reclaimed. But he says it could be a legitimate ground. 1 Corinthians 7, a more detailed passage, Paul, the apostle, mentions another legitimate ground for divorce, which is desertion. When one partner leaves the other and never comes back. And that is also affirmed in the Old Testament. You know, there are times when a marriage is catastrophically broken. And it has to end. Such cases are very hard. What about the violent, abusive husband who batters his wife and kids? What about the callous, serial adulterer who cruelly violates the marriage bed? What about the spouse who skips town and refuses to ever come back? Would Jesus really say that they should, you should stay married to someone like that? Those are hard cases. But we shouldn't base our ethics on the hard cases. Jesus is clear. Divorce is not God's original intention for marriage. Now, what are some implications of this for those who want to follow Jesus? Here are three. Firstly, be very careful who you marry. Be very careful who you marry. It sounds obvious, doesn't it? But you know, Christians do enter into unwise marriages, and an unwise marriage is still a marriage. It's a union. If marriage is for life, it is a union that will be one flesh, unity, then you should take great care to marry someone who will help you grow as a follower of Jesus. If he is if you're a disciple, then he is the center of your life. He is the preeminent relationship, the one who has your heart before all others. Is the potential marriage partner going to help you pursue Jesus or pull you away from him? Now, when a marriage is spiritually unequal, it can still be okay. You know, plenty of people, I've known many, many Christians over the years, especially those who've come to know Jesus uh, as adults, and they're already married, and their partner doesn't follow Jesus. They, they live for Jesus. They pray for their partner. I get that. We understand. But I'm talking mostly now to single Christians. You probably don't realize what a great gift singleness is. It really is a great gift. You enjoy great freedom with your time, your, your energy, your money, what you do. You know, once you're married... You are no longer your own. You belong to another person for life. Hence we say in, in the marriage service, marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty which all should uphold and honour. It enriches society and strengthens community. No one should enter into it lightly. 
selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. Be very careful who you marry. You would be better to remain single than to marry the wrong person. And I'm not holding up some perfectionist standard. I've known plenty of single Christians over the years who have an internal spreadsheet on Excel or some other software package which has a list of criteria for the perfect marriage partner and nobody, even Jesus himself, would match those criteria. We're not talking about perfection. Please, the yeah, perfectionists are never happy, even Pep. But be careful who you married so there's someone who helps you grow as a follower of Jesus. Second implication of this teaching, work very hard on your marriage if you're married. Work very hard on it. Young couples sometimes enter marriage with all sorts of great and romantic expectations. Oh, life's going to be wonderful now. All my problems will go away. Now, the reality of marriage is much richer and also much harder than that and much more ordinary. Seriously. Within two weeks of getting married, maybe, maybe less, you will realize that this is just you rubbing along with another sinner. Marriage brings two sinners into the closest proximity and holds them together. My, my. <laughs> do we, do we, are we surprised that there's sometimes some sparks? Do we imagine that that would be free from challenges? One thing my wife and I have learned over 20 years of marriage, can't believe it, I was, I was an eight-year-old when we married, as you can tell, <laughs> a child groom, 20 years of marriage, we've learned that the way to keep the marriage strong is to work on it constantly. It is like a walled garden. A walled garden, a place of great beauty and joy and sanctuary, but also a place where weeds will grow up quickly and kill the beauty of the garden and become completely noxious unless we constantly work on it. Working on communication. Wow, how is it that after 20 years... I still don't understand what Melissa's saying. <laughs> but I don't. I still don't understand her. But I guess she wasn't meant to be understood, but loved. Working on it. Communication. Did you mean this? Were you upset with me for this? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Not always insisting on having your own way. Not always insisting on being right. Learning to say sorry. Learning to change. Constant change, moving on, working on it, taking time to be together, taking time to serve Jesus together. There are seasons within marriages. There are ups and downs. There are maybe times when you have to reach out to wise people for counseling. There's no shame in that. Just realism. Some of the strongest marriages I've come across or known are people who've sought marriage counseling. The great John Piper one of the great preachers of the last 30, 40 years, uh, had taught publicly that he and his wife, Noel, Noel had marriage counselling. Our former uh, pastor, Rich Prevener, was once in the back of a car with John Piper on a journey, and he peppered him with questions, and he asked him about marriage. And Piper said, well, Rich, I suppose I've learned one thing. There are some things about Noel that are never going to change. I hope he'd learned some things about himself too. Realism. Remember the marriage service. I 
blank, take you blank to be my husband slash wife. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. Work very hard on your marriage. Thirdly, take great care about your sexual integrity. Take great care about your sexual integrity. If sex is the sign of a promise that a couple have made before God, if sex is strictly reserved for lifelong marriage, and when it breaks its bounds, it destroys things, then we have no business making sex into our private plaything, do we? Whether that's the fantasies of pornography and imaginary virtual sex, or with premarital sex, fooling around with someone you're not committed to and maybe never will, or extramarital sex for those who are married, the flirtation with the attractive person of the opposite sex at the office. We are under constant pressure in our society. There's never been a time in history where sexual integrity has been so assaulted. Young people, I think, most of all. How hard it is for you, you teenagers, growing up in this culture, trying to follow Jesus Christ and be pure. How difficult it is for you. Church, can we help them? Help them and each other to live lives of honest purity and sexual integrity before God and each other. We need to help each other so that we can keep the command of Hebrews 13 as a community. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We don't want to fall under that judgment. So, three implications. Be very careful who you marry. Work very hard on your marriage. And take great care about your sexual integrity. The first aspect of radical discipleship that Jesus mentioned is absolute integrity with regard to marriage and sex. Disciples should honor God's intention. We should have proper respect for the seriousness of the institution. And as you can see from what I've just said, that does mean all of us, not just the married people. Now to do that will mean sacrificing our own self-centeredness. It will mean sacrificing our own desires, even our rights, in favor of another person's good. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. You see, in marriage, God's character is revealed. We are to love and relate to our spouse as he loves and relates to us. Completely faithful, sacrificially committed, and uh, all-embracing unity. And of course, that means that's part of what it means to take up your cross. Being a disciple means you want to live like Jesus, faithful, sacrificial, giving up himself for others' good. Secondly, humility. I told you I didn't have time for all three points. The third, second one's quicker, by the way. Uh, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, often the people most affected by divorce are the little ones, aren't they? The children. And those who've lived through their parents' divorce know that most painfully. The children are helpless in a situation. They didn't cause it. They didn't want it. And sometimes adults kid themselves that it won't be too hard on the children. But who is kidding whom? So it's natural that Mark places this next scene 
where he does. People now bring little children to Jesus. A vivid reminder of one reason why marriages should be kept strong is for the sake of the children. And Jesus places his hands on them, which is a sign of his blessing. And to be blessed by God in the, in the Bible means to flourish. To flourish. They want that for their children. So they bring these little babies and toddlers and they're all trying to get to Jesus. Great scene. And they've got these disciples, all a bit self-important. Oh, 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 stand back, oh, oh, easy. You know, it's like the self-appointed bouncers. Take those babies back, please. Behind the line. Rebuke them. And Jesus is so indignant. It's brilliant. Verse 14. Oi! Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And then he gives this amazing theological reason. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Oh, we'll let them through now, Jesus. Now, this is very full on. We've read this recently at a Thanksgiving, but let's look at it again. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? We need to be clear, clear away some of the baggage from our own culture before we can see it. Firstly, we have this idea embedded in our culture that children are innocent and blameless. You know, they're these sweet, innocent... Some of them there is actually laughing already. Innocent, blameless. You know, it's just society that messes them up. But the Bible doesn't share that optimistic view of human nature. It teaches that we are all corrupted by sin, even from our mother's womb. Psalm 51, David, repenting of his sin as an adult, looks back and says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from my mother's womb. That's the biblical view. Sin is our first inheritance. That means that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Proverbs 22:15. A child is not a blank slate. Do we need to understand this? Your child, your dear, your dear child, who we all love, and we're so glad that you, that child is here, is, is a sinner. Really a sinner. And needs salvation. There's a great story told by an Australian preacher called um, Philip Jensen about his two kids, I think he had at the time, an older son and a daughter, who was about 18 months or two years old or something. And they just bought this new radio. And they spent all their money on it. And it was this beautiful new radio. And he, he got the kids and he said to them really clearly, you must not touch the radio. Right? Don't touch it. It was there in the room, gleaming, you know, tempting. But no children, children not touch it. Adults only can touch the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all nodding. So they went out of the room, and the only person left in the room was the little girl, who had never actually spoken a sentence before. And they heard this almighty crash and went back in. Sure enough, there's the radio in bits all over the floor. Oh. And there she is standing there looking at him. And he just looked, looked at her. And before he could say anything, she said her first sentence. Robert did it. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't even in the room. So the Bible's not saying you become innocent like a child. Oh, secondly, we do have a sentimental view of children in our culture, in the West anyway. It's a blind spot in the West. It stops us seeing the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. Our Western culture is now so child-centered that it's actually spoiling children because parents uh, can't discipline them. 
they feel afraid to discipline, not sure how to discipline, and so the children run riot, and then everyone's miserable, frankly. Child-centeredness is miserable, and I'm sure there's going to be a, a, a pendulum swing away from it. When they are made the center of a family or a center of a marriage, chaos results, and the children are not happier. Now, the culture of the first century would shock you. It was not child-centered. The key thing to realize is that children had no status at all. They had no status at all, whether it was the Jewish culture or the Greco-Roman culture. Children had no status. In fact, the Greco-Roman culture, children could be, could be discarded at will. Often girls were just left outside. And unscrupulous people would, would go around and collect them and bring them up in order to sell them into various trades or even have them work as gladiators. Now, the Jewish culture was better than that. They did see children as important, but they had no status. No status at all. They, they had no power. They were vulnerable, totally dependent. They couldn't do things for themselves. They're not worthy of anything. They have no, no, no value. They, can't, they have no claim on Jesus. And therefore, Jesus says, if you want to enter my kingdom, you've got to come like a little child. Implications. Disciples are humble, not entitled. We too come to Jesus with no claim for ourselves. I'm not worthy. I'm helpless. I'm dependent. I'm not, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't deserve anything from you. I'm just coming as I am. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy. Second implication Disciples, followers of Jesus, receive, they don't earn. I said this at the Thanksgiving a few weeks ago. We have five children, and one thing we have realized is that children do not have a problem receiving gifts. They don't think they have to earn it. They never say, oh, I couldn't possibly accept that. They gladly receive. They trust their parents and are willing to be dependent. That, Jesus says, is the way to receive the king, to enter the kingdom. If you don't come like that, you're not getting in. You see? Not to try and earn it. Not to assume that you'll be given a place in God's kingdom because you're a decent person or because you try your best. No. None of that. We tend to think that God might accept people who are deserving in some way, but he accepts babies who've done nothing to commend themselves. And so Jesus says, that's the example for you. So let me ask today, you ready for this? Are you a Christian? And someone might be thinking, oh, of course I am. No, hold on. You might not be. Are you a Christian? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh preacher. He preached in London for 30 years. A great thinker and a great doctor, actually. He often used a diagnostic question to see where someone stood, their spiritual life. He would say, are you ready to say that you are a Christian? And he says that over the years, when he would ask the question, people would often hesitate and then say, well, I do not feel that I'm good enough. And he gave this response. At once, I know that they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it is a lie of the devil. It is a denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. 
You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say, he is good enough and that I'm in him. I received his goodness. I had none of my own. Becoming a Christian is a change in your relationship with God. Jesus' work changes your standing before God. We are in him once we've believed and rested in him. If you could have earned God's favor, listen to this. Do you really think Jesus would have had to go to the cross if you could have somehow earned God's favor? That's a monstrous thought, isn't it? The cross is a, a last solution. It's the only thing left for humanity is the cross. Because only there can sinful people like us receive the goodness of Jesus. We receive it by simple trust. That's all. Amazing thought. Can you not feel your burden roll away? You're dependent on Jesus. Not because you're deserving. You're actually undeserving. We never move on from that. We never graduate from that. That is the gospel, the simple gospel that we believed on which we took our stand. And therefore, that should shape everything about us, including our attitude, our character. So let me ask, what are you like with people who you disagree with? What is your attitude towards them? Is it the attitude of someone who's like a child, who deserves nothing, who's been forgiven for everything they ever did? Or are you judgmental and harsh and critical? What is your attitude to those people who you see as inferior? I'm always interested to see how Christians respond to people who wait on them in restaurants. People who are picking up the rubbish. Bus drivers. Do we view these people as Im images of the living God, of an eternal destiny ahead of them, or are they just servants? Are we a bit full of ourselves? What about people whose lifestyle you disagree with? Do you look down on them? shouldn't not if you've been shaped by the gospel what about people who irritate you or obstruct you they get in your way our posture should reflect that we are like little children who've been freely accepted by Jesus who has blessed us and can it be that I should gain an interest in the saviour's blood died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray.